Hello, and welcome to the new SAE podcast, Tomorrow Today. On today's episode, we're honored to have Jeff Stewart, Assistant Vice President of Policy at AT&T. Jeff, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Grayson. You're welcome. Um, AT&T is a large, diversified company that provides an incredible service to millions of individuals around the world. Can you kind of give us an overview of what you're focused on from the policy perspective of AT&T? Sure. Within our public policy organization, I'm responsible for coordinating policy for our Internet of Things affiliated businesses and support for sort of the full range of policy development and uh, some elements of advocacy for those policies for that business and, and our business interests there. And how do you see the Internet of Things business growing? Your, your company has been very public about how they're very bullish on it. Certainly. Uh, we launched that, that business as kind of a standalone, almost startup type business within our wireless company uh, almost 10 years ago. It was initially called our Emerging Devices Organization, and it's uh, changed into, evolved into the Internet of Things business. Uh, and now it's Advanced Mobility Enterprise Solutions. Name changes, but the business remains the same of trying to connect devices that are things other than phones or tablets to AT&T's network. And so that's encompassed all manner of devices, um, for just about any kind of device that you can imagine uh, putting connectivity into, uh, we've, we've tried to and oftentimes succeed in doing. And you're, you're doing a great job, and it's interesting, and in, in the new name, I noticed the word mobility in there. Absolutely, yes. And um, as of Q3 2019, AT&T has 32 million connected cars. Yes, 32 million, and that's it's a little bit over half of our total IoT or connected device portfolio is actually in the transportation space between connected vehicles and our fleet assets. And in your IoT portfolio, would that include tablet devices? Would that be included in that same IoT? Uh, I don't believe so. Yeah. Those are those are tabulated separately. But it's just it's just absolutely fascinating. So you have 32 million connected vehicles, um, and the amount of data that you've gone through these things over 276 million hours of streaming video. Yes, uh, that certainly um, video drives up a lot of of usage of data in terms of volume. Uh, much of the the utility from the connection, the value from from the connectivity to the vehicle comes from both infotainment that's delivered to the end user or the retail consumer, uh, but also connectivity is delivered to the automotive manufacturer who's who's developing data off of the vehicle for telematic services. And now there's gonna, there's two interesting trends that are emerging in the marketplace, and AT&T is extremely well positioned for both trends. One is the emergence of mobile video. We saw announcements at CES. And then there's the emergence of 5G. And they're both going to converge on the car. And you already have a base of 32 million vehicles. Um, your CEO made a very strategic acquisition in acquiring Warner Brothers Studio. Now you have incredible IP assets. Then you just so happen to be really good at providing cellular data services and preparing for the, the rollout of 5G. It seems that this is all connecting into a really interesting, fully integrated strategy. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, certainly, our acquisition of Warner Media was a was a major evolution for the company and and transforming it into uh, as we often call it now a, a modern media company. Um, and uh, Warner Media operates as a still as a uh, independent organization, independent company, operating company within the the AT and T family of companies. But there is increasingly um, you know ways of looking to support Warner Media's you know distribution of Warner Media's content through AT and T communications uh, networks. And partnering with it, uh, our sibling company, also another operating company called Xander for advertising as well. So that's part of our overall strategy. Um, within the transportation space, certainly, we see as um, vehicle connectivity and automation continues to progress over the coming years, um, you know, we see an increased need for uh, 
telematics data and for infotainment services, but certainly as um, as we reach towards levels four and five of autonomy, obviously four coming much sooner, um, you're going to free up people's time in the vehicle. So when drivers are no, are no longer having to actually operate the vehicle and become transitioned from drivers to, to passengers, uh, we certainly think that entertainment will play a role in what they'll want to do there. If there's anything that we've seen over the last 10 years with, uh, with the advent of mobile devices and is people's desire to consume information and to consume media um, at really sort of tremendous rates. And we don't see that abating at all uh, as we transition both to 5G networks and, and to um, sort of the full transition to streaming video services as, as a mainline main, uh, means of consuming video. And as you transition to 5G services, there's been a lot of headlines around the, in newspapers around the politics of, of 5G. And you're in the policy arena. What are some of the, the biggest hurdles that you've had to face from a policy perspective of, of getting AT&T on the road to 5G? I think one of the first challenges that we faced was um, in deploying the network infrastructure that we need to deploy 5G. Um, it's particularly with uh, the very high bandwidth spectrum that's used for some forms of 5G, often called millimeter wave spectrum, that requires many, many, many more cell towers than um, mobile networks are traditionally needed. Uh, traditionally, people think of a, a what's called a macro tower that might be a, a very tall, you know, 200-plus foot tower that can cover several square miles. Um, at high bands, 5G requires much smaller uh, antennas because they only can cover, can cover a much smaller area, but it covers, requires many, many more of them. Um, and so you think about you know, when we are deploying in a locality, in a, in a city or a county or municipality, um, the footprint difference between putting up a giant 200-foot tower and putting a small cell that's maybe the size of a pizza box that can go on just about any existing infrastructure that's there um, that's a significant difference. And so there was a, definitely a, uh, an educational process to work with um, cities, towns, and counties on here's what the impact is on the infrastructure of deploying small cells needed to deploy 5G versus traditional macro cell towers and working with them to adjust the local zoning policies to prevent those changes on an economic basis. And are those small cells, are they blending into the infrastructure you're putting them on roofs or are they going on light poles? Where are those traditionally going? Uh, all kinds of variations for the, for the physical infrastructure. Um, oftentimes the, uh, the antenna elements for a small cell might be a, a fairly small cylinder, just maybe a, a foot or two high, and that can be mounted on basically any kind of um, existing pole. Sometimes we need to put up certainly new poles, but it can be put on uh, existing telephone or utility poles or traffic signal poles. Or, or other physical infrastructure, um, then requires certainly power and fiber backhaul. So the, the fiber component is a is a key element of being able to deploy a 5G network, uh, just because the amount of data that is capable of being distributed and, and taken in through 5G, any given 5G element. And so it's interesting you talked about the fiber backhaul, and from a I would say on a local government perspective of is is micro trenching is that becoming like a bigger issue of like you get the cell where you want it where it's optimal for your, your customers. And then is, does micro-trenching, and when you're running that fiber backhaul, does that become an issue because you're going to you know, go into the road? Uh, it, it, I believe it has been in some areas. Um, various fiber companies, it's because there's obviously many companies that are deploying fiber both for backhaul purposes for mobile networks, but also for um, providing internet connectivity on a, on a broadband basis to consumers and to businesses. Um, so there's lots of companies in the space that are deploying it, and they've taken a, a variety of different approaches to it. Um, so there, there's the solutions vary greatly as far as just depending on the, the specific local conditions to whether you have access to existing um, pole attachments um, where you can do aerial fiber or if there's conduit in the ground um, or other place like that. I mean, those are certainly all preferable to doing any kind of trenching work 
Um, certainly there's circumstances where some trenching is necessary, whether it's uh, micro-trenching approaches that have been trialed by some or more conventional trenching that uh, can can lay out sort of a more robust conduit uh, for future development. Yeah, and let's go, let's fast forward into the future. Let's call it Acme America. It's a, it's a town in America. Um, your 5G network is fully up and running. Your, your backhaul, everything's set. And this town in the future has full level four autonomous vehicles running around this town for various different, uh, for the residents, for tourists. What do you see the, the opportunity of using 5G in the vehicle in this town? Let's call it Acme America. Well, I think it's really going to depend on, on some of the specific use cases. Um, 4G LTE, which is, has, covers already 96% of the national highway system mileage, um, and is, you know, is obviously broadly available, uh, is going to have a lot of legs. It's going to persist and retain, or sort of remain as a mainline source of connectivity, mobile connectivity for, for quite some time. Um, 5G, which we do expect to have cover, nationwide coverage by about the middle of this year, expecting to cover about 200 million people with low band 5G um, by the middle of this year. And we have current deployments using high band uh, millimeter wave spectrum in about 30 cities that cover parts of 30 cities. Um, and and there's very sort of two very different um, sets of use cases and performance parameters associated with the kind of spectrum that's at use. Um, so very high band spectrum for, for 5G gives you the you know, close to gigabit or better uh, throughput, much, much higher than 4G LTE is capable. At the lower band, the throughput isn't there, but some of the other performance parameters for 5G, uh, such as lower latency, and the ability to have a much um, greater number of devices, connected devices, connected to any single cell, uh, those are still there at, at lower band. So I think what you see in, with that sort of broader coverage and with a, a, a large number of level four and, and, and still existing conventional vehicles that are connected, as that device density goes up in a given area, the 5G networks will be able to absorb that and, and still meet those, kind of, those devices' connection requirements. And needs, and that's one of the key ways that 5G will be able to support there um, that that sort of broader coverage area. When you look at the amount of data that a level four vehicle can can generate, um, and already that cars generate, they generate tremendous amounts of data. Getting that data on and off the vehicle, that's where high band spectrum for 5G will, I think, really come into play. The, and the the tremendously you know high throughput that that millimeter wave and high band spectrum provides under 5G means that when a car is in an area that has that kind of coverage then you'll have the opportunity to get a lot more of that data off. And so I think um, you know, as automotive companies figure out what data they want to leave on the vehicle, what data they want to pull off of it to send to back-end servers in the cloud, and what, what elements of the data they want to have processed through edge computing elements that might be distributed through a 5G network, and that's another key element that 5G enables. Um, you know, there'll be a lot of choices to be made. They'll, they'll drive some of the use cases as to which data goes where and when, and some of that will be governed by network uh, by network availability, network coverage, some of it will be uh, governed by the automaker's own desires for how they want to use that data. Do we have to worry about when the edge network is first rolled out and there's too many users on the network? Is 5G going to eliminate that problem that we, we saw early on? It definitely does help. Like I said, the, the, the 5, 5G performance parameters for a uh, number of devices is about an order of magnitude greater than uh, 4G LTE. So the meaning the number of devices per square kilometer that can connect to the network is an order of magnitude greater with 5G, um, about 100 times better. So that is, is one key thing is um, if you have as more devices get put into use, and this is all devices from cars to people's smartphones and tablets to health devices to other infrastructure elements that might be deployed for smart cities uses, 
all those kinds of connected devices, they all add up and create that, so that device density there at the network edge. So 5G will help uh, absorb all those and be able to connect them to the network. Then the other component of it is certainly is the, um, the backhaul component from the edge across the network or across the network core to its destination, whether it's um, you know, for point-to-point communications or into a cloud service. What we saw with the transition to 4G LTE and, and some of the, the growing pains that people may remember from when smartphones were rolling out, um, the, the, the backhaul that was provided at the time, um, it took a, lot of time, a long time to grow and to, to develop the fiber backhaul necessary to keep up with that demand. Um, so that was really sort of the bottleneck and the constraint oftentimes that limited performance. Uh, as I mentioned, with the 5G deployments and, and the existing improvements that are ongoing to the 4G LTE networks, um, that fiber is being put in there. So that ameliorates some of those uh, bottleneck constraints that we saw sort of with the prior generation. You, you mentioned low band and, and high band, and, and you mentioned also mentioned health. Mm-hmm. With uh, you know the uh, um, a lot of Americans and individuals around the world are wearing fitness trackers and various different health devices or connected scales and low bandwidth applications. Mm-hmm. Will will you kind of divide the network and say, okay, this is very low bandwidth intensive. You run it on a low band, and then reserve the high band for large amounts of data, such as video or data coming off of a vehicle. Are you gonna to kind of balance the network that way? One of the things that uh, 5G allows a network operator to do is uh, something called network slicing. Be, uh, being able to, ca- to create sort of logical networks within the, the network that have the precise performance parameters that are needed by a given use case. Um, so that's a capability that we're certainly building in. And then we'll allow the, the users at the, at the edge of the network, whether it's application providers, device providers, or, or sort of comprehensive service providers that are providing a connected device experience, um, they'll have the ability to you know, request from the network the kind of performance that they need. Um, and then they'll, they can have the ability to get the kind of tailored connection then that suits those needs. And it doesn't necessarily track specifically to spectrum band um, because the, the network will sort of manage that as devices are in range of, of given towers or, or given cell, cell locations. Um, but they can request the kind of performance parameters they need because it may identify as I only need you know, to send a little packet of data every couple minutes and so it's only going to ask for a small amount of resources or maybe I have you know, many gigabits that I need to transmit um, and ask for, for greater resources. And the network will be able to flex and adapt to that in real time across the, uh, um, the full set of devices that are connecting in at, at any given point of the network. When you look at flexing and adapting, the thing that comes to mind is cybersecurity. Mm-hmm. What's AT&T's take on cybersecurity and how are you enabling your in- industry partners in, in automotive to have that true cybersecurity solution? Certainly, uh, cybersecurity has been a, a very key concern, and within automotive, um, we've you know we've worked with partners for for many years now. Uh, we were one of the first supplier members to join the Automotive Information Sharing and Analysis Center, the Auto ISAC. So uh, that was launched in 2015, initially just with automotive OEMs. Um, the following year, they opened it up to suppliers, and and we were happy to to join at that time and and come on board. Um, so both you know through that organization, we've helped work with um, the auto industry as a whole. Uh, on the best practices process uh, developments that that in, that organization engaged in, and, and the ongoing information sharing mission, and trying to sort of raise the game for the for the industry as a whole. Um, and beyond that, certainly within our our customer arrangements with the automotive OEMs, we work to provide them the cybersecurity protections as a network operator that that we can deliver and that meet their needs. And, and that certainly involves taking a, a layered approach to cybersecurity. So there's things that need to be done at the device level, um, and that's that's really you know implemented by the device or in this case the, the vehicle manufacturers 
And then there's things that are done on the network level. We, we do all that we can to secure the network connectivity um, and ensure that it is as protected as possible. And there's things that have to be done at the application service layer, which may or may not be within our control. That's, you know, we, we route the traffic from the vehicle to, to the destination of choice for the, for the customer, whether that's a, um, an end user customer or an OEM customer. Uh, and then there's sort of a threat analysis layer that has to go on all of that to make sure that um, there's no anomalous traffic or other behavior that indicates uh, potential intrusion or other cybersecurity problem. So th those sort of four components are, are what we always look to implement, and we work with our customers to implement solutions that fit their specific needs as best as possible. And working with your, your customers, uh, let's um, the OEMs or the, or the fleet providers, how do you... As the consumer says, the one big thing is developing is trust. And if you're meeting with an elected official and they give you a story, when I'm in my district, I can't have um, Jane Doe come up and say that the vehicle, this incident happened. But you're actively working with your partners to build trust. How do you and your AT&T and, and, the, and the partners in the automotive space come together to tell that story? Look, we are looking to develop trust. We're working to do the right thing. I think first off, you know, certainly it starts on working with the customers. Um, and one of the things that we did for that was in 2014, as we had begun to move much more strongly into automotive, uh, we opened up the first um, sort of telecom-operated uh, lab for automotive technology. It's called the AT&T Drive Studio. It's based in Atlanta. Um, and that became sort of a working lab and place to work with the automotive customers and, and suppliers. Um, and so we've done you know, work there over the years. Uh, directly one-on-one -on -one with our customers to help gain that trust as they moved more so into connectivity into areas that were perhaps less familiar for them uh, at both a technology level and a, and a business level. Um, and then it's sort of at the broader industry perspective, like I said, you know, just a couple of years later in 2016, as the auto ISAC form, we saw that as a very important uh, element and for us to contribute to, um, which, which we have done and, and continue to do so. And then most recently, um, in support of our broader Internet of Things organization, um, we've our chief security organization, CSO organization, um, is is getting very involved in um, Internet of Things cybersecurity as well. And so we've we're working on another facility uh, associated and sort of under the aegis of our CSO organization to work specifically on IoT security uh, with all manner of device providers and researchers. And so that's another forum that we use for engaging both with, uh, with industry, with academia, and, with, and potentially with customers as well to advance uh, cybersecurity for IoT devices to include automotive. Is the Drive Studio <clears throat> lab built on the rich heritage of Bell Labs? Some of the world's greatest in, in inventions came out of Bell Labs in New Jersey. They certainly did. Um, and ironically, our, our, our IoT security center is located in New Jersey. The Drive Studio, uh, like I mentioned, is Atlanta. It's a little different. It's a little bit more customer-focused um, and sort of closer to market than the more sort of fundamental research that the historic Bell Labs engaged in. So it, it is, I would say, characterized as a much more um, applied function um, and geared towards uh, productizing um, and taking to market work that we're doing. And taking to market work, Atlanta's an interesting choice because Atlanta's the home of um, a lot of German OEMs for their uh, North American headquarters. And a lot of mobility experiments are being run in Atlanta. Different car sharing pilots, different subscription services are being run in Atlanta. Is that why the lab was put in Atlanta? Because it's a, starting to emerge as a really big mobility hub? Uh, it, it's been a mobility hub from the telecom perspective for, for a number of years. It, it was the the corporate headquarters of Singular Wireless, which is now a you know part of AT&T's mobility business, um, and so 
much of our internal, uh, both technical and business expertise associated with mobility has certainly been in Atlanta historically, as and many other companies were there as well during um, the earlier days of the wireless industry. Um, and certainly automotive has gained a, a very significant um, prominence in Atlanta with, as you said, several German automakers have their North American headquarters there, um, and, and several suppliers do as well. Um, and then just most recently, actually about a couple of weeks ago, um, a new lab opened up, a consortium-based lab, uh, Infrastructure Automotive Technology Laboratory, IATL, up in Alpharetta, Georgia, just north of Atlanta, um, in partnership with uh, Georgia DOT and a number of private industry providers looking at the infrastructure side of, of connected vehicle technology. Um, so there definitely is a lot of activity going on in Atlanta. I think it was more sort of fortuitous for us and for our, our automotive business that uh, we, we had such a presence in Atlanta at the time. Um, and, and it was what led us to open our lab there. Which is smart with the, the infrastructure development that's happening. Is So all the 5Gs, are you actively involved in that from a mobility perspective of we um, you have internal analysis with X amount of autonomous vehicles in a certain dense urban environment? Are you kind of looking at that as where you're going to deploy cells so those vehicles then can have that connectivity? Well, I think that uh, for our 5G deployment, we do... Um, I, I, I mentioned the stat of, you know, we tend to have nationwide coverage for 200 million pops, I may have said, you know, sort of the, the typical metric, meaning population uh, in, in the wireless industry verbiage. Uh, so when we're deploying networks, we certainly look at where there is is network demand. Um, and generally that tracks highly with people, but also people obviously generally track highly with, with road infrastructure. Um, so you see a lot of convergence. I wouldn't say that we're necessarily planning specifically for vehicle traffic, because the, the network demand is, is um, that we have to plan for goes um, in so many, so many different directions beyond that. Um, you think about in a dense urban area, you've got, um, you've got you know, density that is well off of density of demand for traffic that's well off of the roads in some instances on large city blocks. You've got the vertical component of, of you know, high buildings, and particularly for the high band spectrum I mentioned, it is, is very localized, and so you have to be, it's, it's all effectively line of sight. So we have to start planning more for the Z coordinate that factors in to some extent. Um, and, and we're looking also, thinking of altitude, you know, we, we certainly are involved and interested in what's going on in the unmanned aerial vehicle space, um, UAVs, both for supporting our own operations as well as um, potentially providing connectivity for those, uh, those UAVs in the future. Could you expand on the, the vertical takeoff in Atlanta? Because at CES, Bell had began to... Uh, very big presentation. Hyundai had a big presentation, and you're seeing um, a lot of venture capital money flow into the space, and you're also seeing traditional large aircraft manufacturers are developing prototypes. And I had no idea that AT&T was even interested in VTOL. Can you kind of pull back the curtain there? Well, I'd say for UAVs, not no. necessarily VTOL uh, specifically, but for UAVs, um, one of the first things that um, we found an interest in was um, using UAVs in our internal operations, um, specifically a, a great use case that we determined was for cell tower inspection. For those large cell towers I mentioned, they're 200 foot high. Um, they need to be inspected on a regular basis to make sure that they're uh, physically in, in good condition if there's anything that needs to be done to them. And you know, up until the advent of, of available UAVs, that required having a person climb that pole or climb that tower, which is a very risky proposition. It's limited by weather and all kinds of other things. It takes a lot of time. Uh, so as UAVs became available to do, you know, a flight and base inspection, to be able to get up and look at the antenna connections, look at the cabling and all of that, um, that became a very, you know, key use case for us in, in the UAV space to be able to be an operator for that. Um, certainly also thinking of our, the beginning of our discussion with Warner Media and the media components, 
Um, CNN as a news gathering organization has an interest in UAV operations and, and collecting them, for, uh, using them to, to support its news gathering operations. And then also for our network operations, um, we've to pick, you know, we've, for years we've had things called uh, cells on light trucks and cells on wheels, colts and cows. Um, and one area of interest potentially is, is a different form of cows of cells on wings of using UAVs to help fill in network coverage on a temporary basis as needed, whether that's for events or, or emergencies or things like that. Um, so that's another area that we're interested in. And then more broadly, and this is certainly further down the road uh, timeline-wise because of the, the complexity of the, the regulatory space for UAVs generally, um, but certainly just as vehicles, surface vehicles, cars and trucks uh, have a great need for connectivity, it, it seems eminently reasonable to expect that UAVs will as well. So longer term, we're looking at you know, what role the mobile network can, can play in supporting connectivity for, for general use UAVs beyond AT&T zone operations. And do you think with UAVs and the connectivity, it's, it's, um, it seems like the UAVs, especially on the drone side, is becoming a very hot political issue now. Do you think at some point that connectivity will be mandated just due to the incidents that have been made public where a drone operator goes somewhere they shouldn't go or do something they shouldn't and the lawmakers here on the Hill are getting a little cold feet on that? Uh, well, I have a couple of my colleagues in the policy space who are true uh, drone and UAV experts. So I don't want to get too uh, too far ahead on uh, of of them and speaking out on, on that on the specifics of it because I, I know I know in passing some of the information, some of the sort of developments there, but I'm I'm not involved in that on a day to day basis. No. Um, but it's certainly I think uh, there's a recognition that the sort of the command and control functions for drones and um, how drones get employed. There there are a lot of questions that need to be. Uh, answered at federal, state, and local levels, and there are a lot of stakeholders involved in in there in, in each of them. Um, and, and so I think that's one of the things that we're certainly keeping our eye on and seeing actively involved in, just to, to see, like I said, sort of the role that we think we can appropriately play, figure out what that is, and how we can best support them. And here's when we talk about best supporting them. AT&T is going to continue to thrive along with all of your, your colleagues in the uh, connectivity space because as more and more devices become smart, it's going to need some form of connectivity and there's a trend that everybody agrees on everything's going mobile, you want to take it with you. How do you, when you interact with a, a staffer or a policymaker, how do you explain this future technology and, and the connectivity and then how it's going to have like an impact on their district? Uh, it's very sort of case dependent, I think. It depends uh, very much on their level of, of interest, the, they, the staff or the office's level of interest and experience. Uh, some are, are very keenly uh, following things that are going on in the technology space and, and very actively interested and, and up to date on things. Um, some, it's simply not their background and they may, may or may not have a, a robust interest in it. Um, so sort of the approach greatly varies depending on sort of what level everybody's starting off on those conversations on. Uh, and then I think we just try to present the information as best we can as far as here's the technology basis for what's going on and what, what is informing our decisions or industry decisions. And here's the here's the business considerations that are on our minds that we think that are are relevant to policymaking decisions. Then here's what we think the appropriate policies are to to meet everyone's needs. How many jobs indirectly does AT and T account for or help provide? Uh, we are currently at approximately two hundred fifty eight thousand, I believe, as employees of AT and T. 258,000 employees of the AT&T Corporation. Yes. Globally. Yes. I think it's, it's right around there. Obviously, it fluctuates a little bit, but we're, we're just over, we're over 250,000. 
And how many jobs does your network help supply that it enables through the connectivity? Uh, that's a very uh, detailed econometric you know, question, yeah. you know, depending on how many uh, sort of links in the chain you want to extend it from. Um, but since virtually every job right now is involves some use of data or connectivity, because um, I mean every every retail store has you know, every trans- financial transaction is going over a network, and that's likely touching our network at some point. Every um, you know, obviously every email or text message or all that that engage- is engaged in by sort of everybody engaged in any kind of work, uh, you know, network is an integral part of that. So um, there's, sort of, there's sort of no element of the of the U.S. business community that we aren't engaged with, um, you know, from mom pop stores up through you know the peer Fortune 10, Fortune 50 companies, um, and we have a sort of a scalable set of, of business solutions there that comprises one of our major operating units um, directed towards the business community for that. I mean, it's it's in, the company is incredible because it's diversified, it's financially sound, um, and it has an incredibly large footprint. As we look towards the future, what's next for AT&T. Certainly, uh, the thing that is most prominent right now, the two things that are most prominent right now for AT&T, and particularly this year in 2020, are 5G and and the growth of our media business. Um, and, you know, like I said, with 5G deployment becoming much more broadly available over the course of this year, uh, 5G will begin to become a reality for more people. Um, the things that people are most familiar with or, or accustomed to dealing with sort of their phones and phones and tablets. 5G iterations of those will be coming out across this year. So again, that will make it a little bit more tangible for, for the consumer, the, the broadest number of people. Um, and on the business side, um, for the business customers, again, sort of 5G becomes much more real for them. And that's where actually for, for many 5G use cases, we see um, sort of the, the leadership there coming from, from business customers who really are, are in the process of developing those or identifying those needs within their own internal business operations that, that really take advantage of the, the performance parameters that 5G enables. And then on the media side, again, it's, it's a little bit beyond my my specific area of responsibilities, but certainly, um, you know, we've we've been public in announcing that we'll be launching our HBO Max streaming service in May of this year, um, and that's going to be a major uh, major event for the company and and uh, another sort of key step in the evolution. Yeah, and the, the media is going to be interesting to see. It's not your space, but if you follow a similar route that Disney did with Verizon of bundling, um, if you bundle HBO Max with AT and T, that's going to be interesting if that. If that does happen, um, with the, regards to five G, when could your everyday AT and T mobile subscriber expect to see five G? Uh, like I said, about middle of the year is when we expect to have sort of broad based nationwide coverage, and the devices are coming out from various device manufacturers. Uh, specifically, devices in this case, the smartphones. Those are coming out across the year. Um, I can't speak to the, the specific release timetables for those. Um, but they are, um, some I believe have already been announced and others we expect will be announced um, throughout the year. So really 2020 will be the year it becomes real and tangible for, for the consumers. And then speaking of devices, how did you get the original iPhone? Uh, I, I don't know the full details of the story. It was, um, it was a, a great uh, stroke of, of you know, business discussions, negotiations that our executives at the time were, uh, were very keenly involved in and, and uh, took a big gamble. It was something that we, uh, uh, was, was new to a lot of people, and I don't think anybody quite knew exactly how it was going to turn out for anybody, but uh, I think it's certainly been a, a seminal moment for the telecommunications industry and, and really for society as a whole. It was, it was a brilliant move because I remember uh, prior to the iPhone, uh, various 
uh, service providers with bundle apps. Mm-hmm. And you, you would either go to the uh, provider X or provider Y, and you can get different models and different phones. And it was really amazing. And then the iPhone comes along and changes everything. And I really can't wait to see over the next five to 10 years as 5G rolls out, your media business continues to grow, how AT&T changes as a company. And I can't wait to see how AT&T continues to innovate and provide a service that individuals around the world depend on every day. Law enforcement depends on it. First responders depend on it. Um, mom, mom calling the kids depends on it. So it's going to be really interesting and really bright. And Jeff, we thank you so much for coming on the SAE Tomorrow Today podcast to set some light on the wonderful company, which is AT&T. Certainly. Thank you very much, Grayson. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SAE's Tomorrow Today podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate it, Share your feedback, we love comments, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information on SAE and SAE Podcasts, be sure to visit sae.org forward slash podcast and follow SAE on social media at SAEINTL on Twitter and Instagram and at SAE International on Facebook and LinkedIn. SAE International makes no representations as to the accuracy of the information presented in this podcast. The information and opinions are for general information only. SAE International does not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any information, product, process, service, or organization presented or mentioned in this podcast.